Welcome to Horangi Cybersecurity's Ask a CISO podcast. Come with us as we take a deep dive behind the scenes with the world's top cybersecurity leaders to get insights into security issues you care about. Before we take off, please help us grow by taking just a few seconds to like and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And leave us a review letting us know what you think of the podcast and how we can improve. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ask a CISO podcast brought to you by Harangi for a safer internet and a safer cloud. I'm your host for today's episode, Jeremy Snyder, founder and CEO of Firetail. You can find us online at Firetail.io. And today is a topic near and dear to my heart. We're going to be talking about application security with one of the leading voices in the application security world, and that is Tanya Jenka. Many of you may know the name Tanya Jenka from her prolific posts online and on social media. She's also known as She Hacks Purple. She's the best-selling author of Allison Bobler and Application Security. She founded We Hack Purple, which is an online learning community that teaches everyone to create secure software, and that is something that we definitely need. Tanya has been coding and working in IT for over 25 years. She's won countless awards, and she's been everywhere, from public service to tech giants, writing software, leading communities, founding companies, and, as she likes to say, securing all the things. She's an award-winning public speaker, active blogger and podcaster, delivers hundreds of talks across six continents. She values diversity, inclusion, and kindness, which shines through in all of her initiatives. And I am just delighted to be talking with her and having her on the show today. Thank you, Tanya, so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. I'm pumped. Awesome. Awesome. Well, application security, as I mentioned in the intro, is a topic near and dear to my heart. And I know it's something that you've been passionate about as well. I want to kind of start off with just setting the stage for what does application security mean? And the reason I asked that question, and I think it's important to explore, is that, you know, in my career in cybersecurity, I think roughly the same kind of length as yours, we've seen a lot of emphasis on certain aspects of security, but not on application. We see a lot of, you know, network security, perimeter approaches, maybe even the rise of identity security and single sign-on and so on. But we don't tend to pay as much attention to whether the software we're building is secure. And I'm curious, you know, first of all, what led you down this path? And second of all, what does application security mean to you? Okay, so... I was a software developer for a really long time, I guess 17-ish years, and I met an ethical hacker, also known as a penetration tester. And I not only was a professional software developer, but I also was a professional musician and I played in bands. And so I had, I did folk music, I did punk rock, I did all this stuff, and he was in a band. And so obviously okay. our bands had to play together. That's all we, of course, right? And we became friends and we would go see other rock shows together because that is how friendships form. And, and he spent a year and a half convincing me to join security. And he said, you know, you'd be so good at this. And I was like, well, isn't security just either firewalls or really long compliance documents where you have to check boxes? Like, what's in it for me? And he explained what pen testing was. And I was like, I guess that sounds kind of fun. It's like, you know really intense QA. Um, I used to, like I did stress tests and performance tests briefly when I was there. So I was like, maybe it's like that. I'll give it a try. But very quickly, I figured out that I was meant to do AppSec or application security. And so pen testing is like one part under the giant umbrella of AppSec, which is 
all the stuff that we do, like anything that you do to try to secure software. And so software developers who listen to an awesome podcast like this and then hear, oh, no, there's like this vulnerability that's in the specific version of this framework. And I think we use that framework and I'm going to go check it out. And oh, no, we have it. Let's plan to upgrade off of it. That is you helping secure software. But an application security program, which is the thing I'm obsessed with, is an overall like legitimacy of your program. And it, it's these are the steps we do. Like we have policies to back up these things. You know, every time you follow the system development lifecycle and you do a software development project, you know, you're going to do these three things or however many things you can convince them into doing. Uh, you know, after the app goes out into production, here's things we're going to do to continue to monitor it, ensure it's secure, etc. And so all the stuff that we do, all the tooling, meetings, requirements, whatever it is, what we're trying to do is ensure the software that we create and maintain is as safe as possible. Yeah. So I think that's an important point because I think very often you'll hear a message, maybe it's from a vendor, you know, somebody who makes a particular piece of software or whatever that really pulls you in one direction and might lead you to think that, you know, kind of one solving one problem space is solving application security. And to your point, you know, getting vulnerabilities out is a necessary but not sufficient, right? Because there are many other things that can go wrong. One of the things that I, I spend a lot of time looking at right now is actually this kind of tension between authentication and authorization that you see very often on the application security side, where I think there's a, a misconception in the minds of a lot of developers that, you know, once you're authenticated, it's, it's generally assumed that anything you can request, you're authorized to. And that's very much not the case. In particular, I know we've seen it on the API side and we, we're preparing some research that we're going to release in the next couple of months that really shows the prevalence of this. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like aside from authentication and authorization, there are many other things that are kind of at the application logic layer that can go wrong, right? With application security. Yes, definitely. And we usually call that a flaw rather than a bug. So if you implement right. it wrong, like you make coding mistakes, it's a bug. But if you've designed it and the design itself creates a vulnerability, that's a flaw. And, um, oh my gosh, I actually, I literally just released a blog post about this, Jeremy, you have made, like literally like on Monday, I released a blog post about the API security, uh, OWASP top 10, 2018 yeah. version number one from OWASP. And, uh, yeah, I was talking about like rest APIs are supposed to be stateless. So then how do we maintain a session when by design they're not supposed to be able to maintain yeah. the session? Like, ah, right. what do we do? Right. You should have to re-authenticate and reauthorize every single call, right? That is the point of that kind of, you know, stateless thing. So um, it's interesting you bring up this OWASP thing. And I know we were kind of chatting before we got on the air here today. So we've got the new version in theory coming out. So there's kind of an open comment period as we record in kind of early March 2023. I don't know when people will be listening to this. But what have you seen from some of the what's changed between the 2019 version and the 2023 version of this OWASP API top 10? So I actually haven't had a chance to read it yet, and I'm uh -oh. planning to read it. Uh, and I'm actually like supposed to release a blog post on it in only 12 days from now. So <laughs> so actually, um, I haven't started reading it yet. Like, I, I guess I took a brief look at it yesterday, but a lot of it. So they split one of them from the original list into two. The, so I guess, actually, let's back up. So the main difference between this list that is coming out at the some point in March 
And the old list is data. So basically, okay. they just made up the first top 10, which is the same with their original OWASP top 10. There's just a bunch of pen testers is like, I see this all the time. But right. then they did a call for data across the entire industry, and then their lists got more informative and more yeah. accurate and more helpful. And so the original OWASP API top 10 list, from what I understand, there wasn't a big call for data. I think, I, I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, just one vendor gave them all the data and it's like, okay, so that thank you to that vendor, but yep. mostly no one else answered the call. So this time many people have answered the call, which means the data will be way, way, way better. But yep. there's also a lot of conflict right now um, so Jeremy, you as a startup founder of an API company yeah. are probably yeah. aware that there are so many since 2021, like every new startup is like APIs, 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 APIs. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exciting as a person who is in charge of securing APIs quite often. Um, but that also means a lot of them really want to influence this list. And so, yeah, I can't wait to see the finalized version, what they come up with. Yeah. I mean, look, in the last couple of years, and it's it's kind of funny, I started thinking about API security back in 2019. I was working at a cloud security firm at the time, and I was seeing this natural progression of companies relative to their cloud maturity, right? So they would go through that kind of, you know, first wave of cloud adoption, lift and shift. Second wave of cloud adoption, like, let's get a little bit better. Let's do some reserved instances. Let's right-size some instances. Let's, you know, reduce the the kind of the oversizing that we've all been guilty of in the past. I mean, I don't know about you, but I ran data centers that had 5% CPU utilization, if not lower. So we've all been there, right? Um, and anyway, we, we get a little bit more efficient in that first move to the cloud. But then it's that, let's say, like second or third move when we realize like this thing runs twice a day for five minutes each. I don't need to keep, you know, a virtual machine running 24-7 for it. I can either move it to schedule or I can move it to a serverless function that gets invoked when it needs to. And what I saw out of that evolution was one way or the other, you're going to end up with an API sitting on a network uh, on a network somewhere, transacting both like business transactions and sending data back and forth. And so I was really thinking about it all the way back then. One of the things that occurs to me, though, so great, you know, we should always be doing iterations and improvements over time. It's been four years between cycles and a lot has happened in those years. You know, the number of breaches is, is very, very high. Um, Maybe, you know, we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit in the conversation, but I know there was a recent kind of thing going on in your homeland around the, the some government services that have not been particularly secure over the last couple of years. Maybe share the, share that story with the audience and kind of how you've looked at that. OK, absolutely. So I live in Canada. That's the accent you're hearing. At some point, I will say about or end a sentence with any. Um, and and so um, our tax office is named the Canadian Revenue Agency or Canada Revenue Agency, depending upon which year you look at it. But anyway, so CRA. And recently, so I've been hassling them online for years. So they had the user ID in the URL parameters and I like reported it to them and they ignored me and I reported it to them. And so not like a your, not like a GUID, like literally just like a, you know, user ID one, two, three kind of thing. Yeah, apparently they encrypted it. But still, that means that I could put eventually I could guess and maybe get someone else's. Right. Like I'm like, this okay. is not best practice. Stop doing this. Yep, yep, so what absolutely. I do is t I tell on them to our cyber department. So I, I do this with lots of different agencies, like I'll report it to them. I'll report it to them again. And then eventually I'll be like, OK, that's it. I'm telling on you to dad. And 
Um, and so just very recently, so two weeks ago, I had to log in because I own a business in Canada, which means every single month, at least once, I have to log into their system and forced to use it. Canadians usually just have to do it once a year unless they have fancy tax stuff like I do because I own a business. And so we are forced to use this. We must use this. Uh, so I go to log in and the, there's a new terms of service and you have to click yes to accept or no. But then I'm legally forced to log in. So I don't have a choice. I must accept. Now it said the CRA is not liable for the loss of your data and any damages you may suffer as a result. And we do this because we have taken every reasonable step to secure our website. And therefore, it's not our fault if you have a problem. And they said it in legalese, but that is the gist. Of course. And immediately I slipped out. So I went, so I have developer tools because I'm a nerd. So I open it up sure. and I look at the response and their cookies have none of like the secure flags not set, the HTTP only flags not set. like. None of the security settings on the cookies are set. And then I look okay. at the security headers and I only have one of like the eight that I would prescribe, like that I prescribe in Alice and Bob. I, like they just don't have the basics done. I'm like, this is like literally like kindergarten and you don't have this. And you're like, oh, our security is so good. So then I did more research because that is what I'm like. So there's a giant class action lawsuit right now, or there was at least last year against CRA because they lost a lot of Canadians data in, in more than one data breach. And then their identities were like many of them, their identities were stolen. There's a lot of very bad things that can happen when extremely personal financial information gets out, especially because in Canada, traditionally, that is not public information. And I know we discussed in Finland that yeah, that yeah. is public. Yeah. And so therefore they are ready for that. And you, but Canadians are not used to that. It's like, I tell CRA how much I make. They're not supposed to tell everyone I know. That is not the deal. Um, yeah. And so I tweeted at them. I sent a letter. I sent an email. Um, and so I am doing media interviews if anyone wants to talk about how this is not. Oh, you can't terms and condition your way out of liability for data that you force us to give to you. That's unreasonable. Yeah. It's complete. Yeah. I don't, I'm not accepting it. I'm legally unable to not accept. I must use this or else yeah. I go to jail for tax yeah. evasion. Like this isn't a real office. Like it's jail or will be willy-nilly with your incredibly private and personal information. Yeah. And so not cool, CRA. And that's such a kind of a weird, I don't know if power imbalance is the right way to think about it, because exactly as you said, you don't have any choice to comply with, you know, being a citizen, being a law abiding citizen you must do this thing. And yet they're not taking their side of the responsibility seriously. And if you, if you, let's say you took that out of the public service and you put that into, let's say a business contract between like, you know, a, a financial, an accounting firm that you want yeah. to contract with, you would absolutely not give that from your business after you've done a security review. And similarly, like for us as a security vendor, we've just completed our SOC too. We had to go through all these things and we now share that document with our customers and they've got the access to review our practices and they can then make a, an informed decision about whether they like it or not, or they can ask for more information on things that they like. That's generally how we get business done and how we get these contracts done. And yet you don't really have that option. And so you followed a disclosure program. What's kind of the they, current state? They don't have one. They, oh. they know not a disclosure. No, no. Uh, so what I did was, is I tweeted at their minister and their department. So I tweeted again. I was like, hello, hello, internet. 
So that was ignored. So then I sent a letter to the prime minister uh, and an email and then a letter to their minister and an email. I sent a letter and an email to my member of parliament. I actually got my member of parliament wrong at first, which is a bit embarrassing because I just moved and I didn't realize I had just crossed over the line. So I was like, yeah. oh, sorry, not you. I mean, this minister, so I had to resend it, which is fine. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, so the prime minister's office was like, thank you very much for your letter. We are going to send this like from the prime minister's office to the minister. And so we'll see what happens. But I'm actually going to Ottawa in two weeks from now. And there is a giant privacy conference. And I will be speaking about this at the it's called the Privacy Congress event, uh, March 22nd, 23rd. And so I'm going to speak about it. They're adding me uh, to the session because you can't have privacy if you don't have security. So you can have security and no privacy, like Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, every single thing that Meta has ever done, or Google. Um, But you can't have privacy if there's no security, right? So this is is a matter of the privacy for Canadians. And I know that you mentioned, um, so like if it was an accounting office, I just use a different accounting office and we don't have that choice. But there's actually significantly bigger risk because the CRE holds all of Canada's money. Yeah. They have all. So people are like, what about the Bank of Canada? I'm like, the Bank of Canada sets the interest rates and does all this economic stuff. And that's very cool. And also, I've heard their security is awesome. I don't know. I haven't actually personally looked, but the rumors are it's great. Uh, they have their security headers and their cookie settings. But anyway, um, they don't have the money. Yeah. CRA has all the money of Canada. And therefore, yeah. is in my opinion, one of the biggest targets that could possibly be in Canada, especially of the government. And so not only is it like, you know, if I'm choosing this mom and pop accountant system that or accounting team that has a, a very bad security posture and an absolutely terrible terms and conditions, but they're not a huge target and CRA yeah. is, and that's why it's extra disconcerting as a citizen. Yeah. I, I want to come back to, there's a couple of things that you said there that I want to dive into in a little bit more detail. And they kind of connect with something we were talking about a little bit earlier in the conversation. One of them is around, let's say, kind of designing an application security program or strategy. Let's say like top down, kind of bit by bit. We hear a lot of acronyms in cybersecurity and probably like those of us who are in it every day, we're used to a lot of these acronyms. And we see things like, you know, DAST, SAST, IAST. Um, and then we see things like SCA. And I've seen two flavors of SCA. I've seen um, software composition analysis and source code analysis, both used for for SCA. So if you think about application security programs that you've designed, what are some of the other components that you try to build in? You know, is it SCA? Is it one of those, you know, AST acronym thingies? Like, what do you think are important practices to to incorporate? So this is literally my favorite topic, and I have worked with okay. 200 companies on their programs. So usually I start off with what level of security do you need? So do you need to okay. be pretty darn good? Or do you need to be perfect? Because okay. um, so I've done counterterrorism activities for Canada. I helped. Well, I was in charge of security for one of the elections. Those need to be perfect. People can die if you get these things wrong. Democracy could be compromised, etc. But most of the AppSec I do, it just needs to be really good. Um, and so as a result, we design a slightly different program. And then I also ask them about, I guess, what their threat model is. So what are the things that okay. you're super concerned about with your business? What is like the really, really important stuff we definitely need to protect? 
where are there things you're concerned about? Where are you at right now? And where do you need to go? And then I design the plan from there. And so I like to look at the system development lifecycle or the SDLC. So that is yep, yep. a process the developers follow to make their software. And there's a, def a bunch of different flavors, but no matter what flavors you do, so if you're doing DevOps, Agile, Waterfall, or you're doing one of those wacky ones that most of us don't do, each one of those phases, I believe, needs at least one security activity. So if you're going to okay. gather requirements, like what am I building? Okay, cool. You're building a web app? Awesome. I have some security requirements for your web app. And like, I know I'm repeating myself, but I want those cookie settings and I want those security headers and I have a bunch of other things. Every single web app needs this. Every single API needs this. Every single serverless app needs this, et cetera. Right? And so then you go into the design phase. I would like to threat model what the risks are for this and make sure we have something that's defending our system from this problem. Like if you're up all night worried about voter suppression, then I want to put every single possible thing in my app to stop that from happening. Right. And in the same way that, um, you know, the government has certain threats and risks, private industry usually has completely different ones, but are just as dire. Right. And yeah. so going through with the things that are important to them and then designing the program around ensuring that they have that. But also while you build the software, it must be secure. And then okay. after you release it into production, it must continue to be secure. And that's a hard part. Like, so we want yeah. a monitor, we want a log, we want to be able to have the app, I know this might sound silly, but call for help if it needs it. When I was a dev, I would have it call for help so that I would just know if it was down because I found it embarrassing if the client called me and they're like, the app is down. I wanted it to be back up before they could yeah. find us, right? Yeah. And so um, I, so like last month I was, I was in Dublin at the OWASP Global AppSec event and I released a small framework and if you want I could give you a link after to share in the notes but the idea is is we want to run security during the system development life cycle and after to maintain that they continue to be secure because guess what Jeremy a malicious actor is not like oh what is the new thing that had a pen test done no what they look at is what is the oldest most terrible rickety app on yeah. us Domain? Oh, I'm going to start there. Update yeah. in 2008? Sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's really interesting. You know, we were recording this on the exact same day that we released an episode about threat modeling. So there's a lot of uh, alignment between what you're talking about. And it's really interesting you bring up this kind of old uh, thing. This is one of the challenges we've seen on the API side is, you know, APIs very often get versioned and then they get external consumption. And when you see, you know, I've got V05, but I've also got V04 and V03 and V02 that are still online. For what reason exactly? Um, so yeah, we, we've seen that uh, a number of times. So you're, you're speaking my language there. But it sounds like from a threat modeling perspective, it's not as easy as boiling it down to like, oh, you do some SEA, you do some SAS, and like, you know, you build that in. And if, as long as that aligns to your threat model, it's not like a straightforward, simple kind of roadmap that you can really just, you know, pick these things from and you, you've checked your boxes and you're good, right? I would say that tooling enough or tooling alone is not enough. I really say we like, I know that I'm biased because I do AppSec work and then I, I want to continue to be employed, but I, I truly believe one, I'm, I'm never going to run out of work. Unfortunately, I would love, I would love to be out of work because there's just no apps that are insecure, yeah. but yeah. more honestly, so tooling's awesome. I want tools. 
I would like to analyze apps from three different standpoints. So like the dependencies that you include, because that's risk. That you okay. Yep. Uh, yep. The written code that your team created. And like, if there are no, like vulnerabilities we can see from analyzing it and then dynamic analysis. So interacting with the application and making sure that I can't make it do things it's not supposed to do. Yeah. Right? And yeah. sometimes you can do that like two in the same, like, vendor product that you purchased and sometimes you can buy a suite of products and there are all sorts of different types of products that do that but the key is is that it's going to work within your developers processes i get the yeah. best results when it works with the way the developers work so if you have a bunch of folks doing devops and they want to have the pipeline not be longer than eight minutes then i can put maybe one tool or two tools in there and I have to just check for the really important things. And then outside the pipeline, I can run something overnight or I could do something else. And like when they check their code in, can I look at it? Can I provide them tools within their IDE? And by that, I mean their programming interface, the thing where they write the code all day long. If I could put a tool in there that they like and sound helpful and not a giant pain in their butt that makes their life yeah. hell, yeah, then I'm going to get awesome results, right? And so... It's funny, when I decided what to take in college, I told my mom, I like the people in the computer science class the best, and that's why I want to take that. And she's like, oh, sweetie, that sounds good. But really, both my aunts are software developers, three of my uncles are software developers, like 10 of my cousins are software developers. So when I You went into the family business. <laughs> exactly. Like, no one was surprised, but really, I'm just like, those are my people. Yeah, it, yeah. Totally ironically, Jeremy, I helped one of my female friends write a dating profile. And for two weeks, she said, only software developers wrote her. <laughs> and so... Okay. That's literally on my flag. Yeah. I mean... Anyway. Good, good job security, good future career prospects. I don't know Is it, if we're looking for the pluses in the... In, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But there's a couple of things you said there that are, are really kind of like... um. I think really interesting to think about. One is, of course, like the whole point that you've got to pick the activities, A, aligned to your threat model, but B, that won't be rejected by the organization. And I've said this a lot. You know, I spent uh, about five years working on cloud security. And in the cloud security world in the early days, there was this big kind of fight going on between CSPM and CASB. And if, you've, if you're not familiar, let's just put it this way. One is an approach that tries to make you CASB tries to make everything go through this choke point that only allows you to do the things that you've been explicitly allowed to do. And it's like a deny all except for these few activities, right? And the other is you're going to go do whatever you do. We're just going to keep an eye on it. And then when you've stepped out of bounds, something's going to happen. Either, you know, like a red flag gets thrown up or maybe it gets automatically shut down or a ticket or whatever it is. And I think that's such an important point is like you've got to pick the right thing for your organization you know, no tool is going to change an organization, but an organization can make a tool fail pretty quickly. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. So constantly, um, so I work with a lot of people through this group called IANS Research. So I'm a faculty member and basically you can phone an expert and I'm one of the experts and I just like crush your AppSec problems, which I really love. It's though so, it's so exciting to be able to get to meet all these different AppSec teams and learn about their programs. Like I find it this great joy. Plus they give me money. And they, uh, and a lot of them, I'll talk to them and they're like, you know, we own these three or four or five tools. What should we buy next? And I'm like, cool. 
how many criticals do you have right now in prod? And they're like, yeah. oh my God, like a thousand. And I'm like, use that money to buy an engineer. Yeah. Just fix yeah. those bugs. And they, and they're usually like, and so one of them, um, not through IANS, like one that I was contracting with directly, we just got a co-op student. And I was like, yo, just fix all the cross-site scripting and SQL injection you see. I still finding SQL injection everywhere. This makes me cry. This is how you fix it. Go forth, Brian. Just do yeah. pull requests everywhere. And like, yeah. yes, one or two things got broken, but mostly we eliminated a bunch of criticals. And so it, this may sound silly, but like if you can get one person that just fixes all of this type of thing and you can eliminate an entire bug class and you pay them like $60,000, that's a steal compared yeah. to buying like a SaaS product for sometimes like 100000 200000 Yep. I worked somewhere once and we bought a tool for $500,000 and we got very little use out of it. And so I'm always like, I want to get every ounce of value of the tools that we've paid for before yep. we buy another tool. Yeah. But I am cheap. I worked at the government and my budget was like this. Yeah. And so yeah. I remember I would get, I could afford one pen test a year at this one place and I would get the pen test. I'd be like, great. And we fix those things. But then I'd go look at every other app. I'd be like, I wonder if this payload would work there. I wonder if this would work here. I wonder if we're missing, oh my gosh, our SSL handshake's so crappy and old. And so I could take it and I called it going shopping. That's probably not a smart way to call it, but I didn't know what to say to my, I was like, I, these and these and these. And she's like, but the pen tester left weeks ago. I'm like, but he left this report and I'm on it. And so yeah. I try to stretch those bucks, if that makes it. Yeah, sense. yeah. It, don't don't feel bad about the, uh, the $500,000 purchase. We had a previous guest who, didn't share the story on air, shall remain anonymous. Their organization once shredded $2 million each firewalls. And when I say shredded, I mean literal shredding um, because they couldn't attest to them anymore and they had never gone into production. So don't feel bad. You're not the biggest waste <laughs> in terms of guests that we've had on the show. But I want to come back to another thing that you said earlier. You talked about dynamic testing. And this is one of the things that I've, I've really thought about a lot in application security in particular. We talked earlier about flaws and how flaws tend to be kind of, you know, design mistakes that make their way into software through whatever process. I've I've seen from a lot of kind of pen testing that once you uncover one of these things, it often tends to be a flaw, not like a localized problem. So to that point, when you find a flaw in application security, it's usually systemic, right? And it's usually pervasive, meaning that every transaction or every kind of request of that type is subject to the same type of flaw. So when you think about dynamic testing, I know you you spend time with this with uh, um you know kind of red teaming and blue teaming. Red teaming you know for the for those who don't know more of the attacker kind of outside in view and blue teaming more of the inside out defense. I, I find that there's not always that mindset on the defender side on the blue team side of putting yourself in the attacker mindset to try to break things and get inside. So how do you kind of like talk about that with some of your clients in terms of a, maybe encouraging more creative thinking, maybe encouraging more thinking to find these flaws and eliminate them from designs? So when I started in security, I was the worst threat modeler ever because I would always come up with ideas of how to make it work because that's what a dev does. They find ways to make the thing work to get the thing done they need to do. And I remember my first professional mentor, he was like, take off your developer hat, 
put on your black hat and become evil Tanya. I'm like, but Tanya's pretty nice. Um, and so I started attending threat modeling sessions with other people who are amazing and I got better. I also started asking software developers and other technical staff to attend the threat model. And then I would say to them, if you were going to hack your app, what would you do? And I remember their answers were astoundingly terrifying. And then, so I started figuring out that I could threat model in my own way. So I would take stride in my head and I, I would take each of the let. So stride is a methodology for penetration yep. testing and it is an acronym and each one stands for something. So like uh, stride, like T is for tampering, uh, S is for spoofing, et cetera. But I'm not like, could someone spoof this? I'm like, could I pretend to be that user? And do this, like, what stops me from doing that? And so yeah, I yeah. wouldn't tell them we were doing threat modeling. I would tell them, I'm going to draw out your design on a whiteboard and ask you questions. And then we might stumble upon security problems. I'd be like, this and this, how do they talk? How do I know this dude is who I think I'm talking to? And and I'd just circle and then we'd take a picture after. And then I'd say, so there's three things that scare the pants off me. And it's this. What can we do about it? I'm like... At the end, ha ha, you just did threat modeling. Um, but, the, but the idea is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a three-week full-time engagement. And you can right. still get a lot of value. And I also found that the more developers that you make a part of these sessions, and the more you, for instance, if you have like a security champions program, so you have one software developer from each team where you're t teaching them tons of security stuff, whenever possible, inviting them and telling them about those threat models helps their brain work like that more and more. And so I remember a friend saying she had gone to see a therapist and she's like, why can't the therapist just tell me what's wrong? She just keeps asking questions until I stumble upon it. And I'm like, but then if they just told you at the beginning, the problem is, I don't know, whatever, right? Like your parents, yeah. uh, sure. you'd be like, no, it's not that. But then if they took 10 sessions to slowly bring you to that and then you'd figure out, for, Darren, it was this thing my parents did or whatever the thing is. I'm like, yeah. if she just told you in the first session, she's like, I would have told her to F off, but she was wrong. Um, and yeah. so sometimes if you ask the right questions and lead them down to the thing, then they keep it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but you hold that information permanently because yeah. you came to it on your own. And so yeah. bit by bit, asking the right questions and making sure they're involved in those conversations. Cause quite often a lot of companies are like, oh, the technical people don't have time for that. I'm like, it's only an hour meeting. I just want one or two of them to show up. And yeah, they come away with, oh my gosh, that's so scary. Yeah. That could happen. We got to do something. So that's what I want. Yeah. I want. Yeah. I want them to do something. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's awesome. So um, we've only got, you know, maybe five minutes left on our recording today, and I, I've still got two or three things that I really want to get through with you. Um, I want to talk about your work at um, SheHack, or sorry, at WeHackPurple. So, um, you know, when you kind of do that work, I, I assume this is a lot of the work that you're doing with, um, with those clients in their application security programs. Is that correct? Sort of. So WeHackPurple okay. uh, is currently in the process of scaling up. And so we have a we have a program where basically I teach application security and I build your entire program with you. And so okay. that's pretty popular. But then I also teach secure coding. And 
I, I don't know how to say this, but it makes way more money because of PCI compliance and because there's just so many more developers. Um, but we've actually brought on five or six new professors so that we're going to teach like encryption, web app hacking, all like the the full flavor, threat modeling. Um, and so my everyday work is like getting the professors where they're supposed to be, releasing more on the post, okay. running the giant online community, uh, and then usually do, and then building an AppSec program usually once a month with a company because I can't be the main trainer anymore as the company grows, if that makes sense. I, you yeah. know, I love training, just to be clear. Um, but you can't scale a company if everything goes through the Tanya bottleneck. I'm learning about business from new mentors and it's very helpful. Yeah. Well, on those lines, what are your recommendations for somebody kind of entering cybersecurity? Because it can be, let's be honest, A, the whole industry can be a little bit overwhelming because it's so full of technical acronyms and jargon and it can be scary and it's high risk and it can be high stress. What are your recommendations for for generally somebody coming into the space? And secondarily, I know you do work on kind of diversity and inclusion in this space. What are your recommendations for both kind of women who are thinking about careers in cybersecurity and then for employers who are looking to increase the diversity of their own workforces? Okay, I have so many thoughts on this. So the first thing okay. you want to do is try to figure out what area of cybersecurity is the most interesting to you. Because I essentially spent two years learning to become a pen tester. Then I was a pen tester for one year and I was like, forget this. Get, like AppSec is where it's at for me and my personality and my interests. And then I, I flourished because I was finally in the right role. Because I made my pen testing boss so crazy. He'd be like, stop calling them and helping them fix bugs. What are you doing? Um, and like, why'd your pen test take four days longer than everyone else's pen test? I'm like, cause threat modeling takes time. Um, and so finding the right place and the way that you can do this, there's a bunch of ways. So one, I wrote a blog article called jobs in information security. Um, and okay. it's thousands of reads every month still, where I just in plain language, describe what several of the jobs are. So you could just see, oh, these two might be interesting for me. Then the entire first season of We Hack Purple podcast has, I believe, 48 episodes about every single different type of job. And we interview one or more people for every single job title so that you can get like, how did they get that job? What is a day like? Like, do you work a lot of overtime? Do you have to travel? Do you have to speak in front of crowds? Because that sounds terrifying for some people. Um, then there's this book by someone named Alyssa Miller. And so she's known for like being a great conference speaker and doing lots of other cool stuff. But her book focuses on every single type of role in InfoSec and how to get into it. So pick one of those three things, check it out and figure out one or two or three where you're like, that's cool. Then join communities that have to do with that thing. So if it's application security, you want to join we had purple community which is free you want to join the OAuth community which is free you want to join the DevSecCon community which is free and i know that there's a few others uh, depending upon where you live in the world so like austria has this group called sec for dev and they're super super amazing but austria is really far from british columbia and that's where i live and so i only get to see them once in a while so you you figure out and you join and you start meeting people so then the next step in my opinion for everyone is to find a professional mentor and so there are a bunch of mentoring programs, especially for women and people from underrepresented groups, WISIS. So that's W-I-C-I-S. Um, uh, so Women in Cybersecurity. That's what the yep. WISIS stands for. So they're running one right now for the next two weeks. Um, 
every single Monday on Twitter and Mastodon, I run one with the hashtag Cyber Mentoring Monday. So every single Monday since 2018, I, I'm just like, yo, it's Cyber Mentoring Monday. Who wants to meet? And then people connect with each other and it has resulted in businesses being started, um, friendships, people being hired, people like switching careers. It's very exciting. There are a lot of people who are willing to give back and help these new people join us. So find, so there's a bunch of ways you can find a mentor. Find one that you can trust. Um, my first uh, professional mentor in cybersecurity unfortunately broke my trust. And uh, when I had refused a job with him, then trashed me to the place that was hiring me instead until the job offer was rescinded because he was angry and I don't use his name in public. But then my next professional mentor was a dream. He was so amazing. And the next one and the next one, and I've had many. And so you want to find one you can trust. And then, so now you've got a mentor, you've networked, you know, lots of people, you're learning lots of cool stuff. You figured out the area that you're interested in. And then that's when you can start applying for jobs and asking for introductions or recommendations because you've built a network. You don't show up at the at the community the first day and you're like, give me a job. I don't know anything yeah. and I'm lazy and selfish. You want to prove you're the opposite of those things. And so if you are a woman or a non-binary person, there are so many organizations specifically that exist to try to help you. And so if you're an employer, what you could do is some of these charge membership fees or there are events that are paid, so you could cover these things. So some really good ones, which I happen, um, we have purple sponsoring because they're just so awesome. So one is called the Diana Initiative, and it is part of what I affectionately refer to as Hacker Summer Camp. So every August we have DEF CON, Black Hat, a whole bunch of things all happening at the same time. And then the Diana Initiative is like the safest place on the planet for women and allies and NBs or non-binary folks. It is, um, it's such a breath of fresh air. It's so nice. The first time I went to DEF CON, I was just, I was literally sexually harassed constantly. I had a lot of unwanted touching. I had a lot of just like, I'm going to have to yell and slap people now. And that's not a thing I usually have to do at a professional event. Um, and so this is a, a place where you could meet a lot of people and then attend all the rest of the events and feel safe because you essentially have a group of people around you who have the same values and ethics that you do. Um, yeah. Then another one is Women Cyber Jitsu, and they're running an event in June. And they also have um, an award ceremony, so they give awards to like just basically kick-ass ladies. Um, and then also really great allies as well. And they focus on specifically giving like lots of skills so that you can find a job in cyber. There's a ton more, um, including WOSEC, Women of Security. So that's when I started. It is less organized since the pandemic because okay. this might sound silly, but basically they would all attend in a group to various events so that you have a bunch of women with you. It's It may sound odd, but like if I'm going to travel to another country, I don't know anyone. I'm going to this event. No one knows where I physically am. Like yep. if something, if I just disappeared from the conference, would anyone notice? How long would it take them to notice? But if I already have 20 ladies that I had breakfast with the morning before I got there, like I've done it and I've seen them like three days later at the conference, all sitting together, laughing, like exchanging phone numbers or email addresses. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're making friends. This is awesome. Um, and so if you can provide opportunities for people essentially to be with other people that are like them, so they don't feel the odd one out, like it sucks. Yep. 
every time I go to like some sort of hacking training or whatever, I'm always the only woman. And so I would be like, I'm going to make a giant CTF team of all women and bring them with me. So I'm not always the only one. Like, I'm so sick of it, Jeremy. Um, And so if you can enable them by like essentially providing a network of people who are like them, and there's the same for disabled people, people of color, like there's all sorts of different groups of people who are underrepresented in tech, and I want them to stop being underrepresented. And so one of the best ways we can do that is by making them safe spaces, giving them extra opportunities to skill up, et cetera. And so um, hats off to these organizations that do such a good work, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, you know, one of the things that makes me both such a champion of this stuff as well as, you know, I'm, I'm a straight white guy and not really like fall into one of these, let's say, underrepresented demographics or anything, but I am the father of two daughters and the only son in a family of five. I have four sisters. I've grown up with households of women, both from birth and continue. Um, And, you know, and I just think like the opportunities I've seen for myself, especially more with my daughters than with my sisters, that I wasn't very aware when I was younger. But I've seen, you know, the types of opportunities presented are often presented differently. And people are, are often kind of steered different directions just as a default assumption. And that is not something that we want to kind of perpetuate. And then the, you know, the other thing from my view is, um, you know, when I was getting management training earlier in my life, one of the things I saw from organizational behavior and, and psychology was teams that are diverse outperform. They may take longer to kind of reach consensus because everybody brings different perspectives to the table and good functioning teams actually take time for discussion to happen which is something that I think a lot of times in cybersecurity we push to the wayside in the midst of like an incident response. And, you know, for better or for worse, you kind of overlook different kind of attack vectors or breach vectors that might have been um, that you maybe should be looking at. But, you know, diverse teams bring better security outcomes, just like they bring better outcomes in almost every aspect of business. And so, you know, I really want us to continue to support these types of organizations to bring more diversity into the space. I think that's very important as we go forward, because actually, like the cybersecurity challenges are just getting bigger. We're creating and storing more data every year. So true. It's so true. And so employers could do things like sponsor these events. So one of so one of our sponsorships is with Diana. And so we're getting seven free tickets. And I mean, I'm the keynote, so I already have a free ticket. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're running contests to give all the tickets away to just like get more women on in there. Right. And so if an organization sponsors it, uh, it costs slightly more, but then you get a whole bunch of tickets and then you could give it to yeah. all of your yeah. your people, right? So I feel like there's a, a lot of ways where you could think outside the box a little bit, if that makes sense, and, yeah. um, and do some good things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're pretty much running out of time, but I've got one last thing for you. I know you've written a book um, and I love the title, Allison Bobler and Application Security. So Talk to us about the book. You know, what inspired you to write it? Who's it targeted at? And what can uh, a reader expect to learn from it? Okay, so the idea of my book is it is a book I wish I had in 2014 when I first moved into information security so that I could know how to do the job that is AppSec. Like, what is this a secure system development lifecycle? Like, what are all my options? How do I start doing them? Like, I want to write a secure coding manual for my office. I don't even know where to start. 
And so it is a book where any software developer, anyone that works in IT at all could read it and understand. I'm also, uh, I'm dyslexic. And so okay. when I learned French as an adult, I had to go to a special school for dyslexic adults to learn another language because it's, it's exceptionally difficult for us. And they showed me the 21 different learning styles. And I figured out which ones were mine. And then I actually graduated a month and a half ahead of schedule, which was really exciting because I found out how I learn. And so then I've applied that to all these things in my life. And I'm always like, so I learned how to drum and started a band and like put out a very silly music video. Um, but the point is, is once you learn how you learn, you can learn anything. And so in yeah. a book, I try to cover things from all these different angles to make it as easy and accessible as possible. So there's yeah. a story, then there's a diagram, then there's some code, then there's a technical explanation. Then there's another thing where I bring you back and tell you a story that like, Ex like explains why that's important. And so yeah. my key thing that was really important to me was that people found it easy to understand. And so far that has been the review that it's like, I didn't think that I'd be able to understand because I don't know how to code. And except for chapter three, which is very Cody, um, that you can read the whole thing. Like even my, my grandma read chapter one, chapter two, and then chapter nine. She didn't read all of nine, but she did really well. So she's like, where are these password managers? I hear I need one. And like, if we can make these things accessible to everyone, we'll have better security. And so I am currently writing, but behind on schedule. Sorry, folks. Um, Alice and Bob learn secure coding. And so I want to cover, so I already have like the basics for what applies to every language, but then I want to deep dive into really popular frameworks and programming languages. Like what is cool stuff I should be doing? What are things I should be avoiding that are disconcerting? Uh, and then, of course, my favorite, the secure system development lifecycle. What's all the cool stuff that I could be doing? Yeah. All the cool stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's great. And as with uh, many other uh, books and authors that we featured here on the podcast, we will be giving away a copy of that. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we'll be posting on LinkedIn and we'll be, I think like our other giveaways, we'll be looking at kind of maybe one of the best comments or best questions posted as a follow-up to today's episode um, for the winner. So stay tuned for that. Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time. We've gone a little bit longer than normal, but we had so much to cover and I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure our audience will as well. Again, this is Tanya Jenka. Her book is entitled uh, Alice and Bob Learn Application Security. Anywhere in particular you want to steer the audience to get that? Anywhere you want. And if you go okay. to alisonboblearn.com, uh, I have an, a newsletter about it, so I'll tell you when the next book comes out. And I will t uh, on YouTube, there's a playlist where I did a live three-hour lesson on every single chapter of the book with a lot of famous Fantastic. So, for instance, the threat modeling part has Adam Showstack. So, yeah. uh, so there's free lessons to teach all of it to you as well. That's fantastic. So you can look for that playlist on YouTube. You can look for Tanya's blog at shehackspurple.ca, that jobs and information security post that Tanya mentioned earlier in the episode, as well as all of her other posts are there. Tanya Jenka, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Ask a CISO podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. Bye.